Welcome to episode 13 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. In BPD, the borderline could be considered the borderline or that boundary between self and other, the boundary between life and death. People with BPD put their body on the line in often graphic ways. They put their lives on that line. Hi, I'm Rowan, and this is part one of a two-part segment with Dr. Yvette Vardy about Borderline Personality Disorders, or BPD. This podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Dr. Vardy a question, you could do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. BPD is a poorly understood condition. So before we jump into it, I wanted to share some of the following information just to set the scene. So there are nine symptoms of BPD according to the DSM, you know, the modern Bible of psychology. They are fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image, self-harm, extreme emotional swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, explosive anger, feelings of suspicion or out of touch with reality. So someone suffering from BPD could relate to statements like, I often feel empty, my emotions shift very quickly, and I often experience extreme sadness, anger, or anxiety. I'm constantly afraid that the people I care about will abandon or leave me. I would describe most of my romantic relationships as intense but unstable. The way I feel about people in my life can dramatically swing from one moment to the next, and I don't understand why. I often do things that I know are dangerous or unhealthy, such as driving recklessly, having unsafe sex, binge drinking, using drugs, or going on spending sprees. I've attempted to hurt myself, engage in self-harm behaviours such as cutting or threatening suicide. When I'm feeling insecure in a relationship, I tend to lash out or take impulsive gestures to keep the other person close. BPD is treatable, but it's really something that therapists need to be specifically knowledgeable of, and that is where Dr. Vardy comes in. Okay, so having said that scene, let's dive in. When I was doing undergrad psychology, I um, had a friend who started to feel really unwell, and she expressed some suicidal thoughts, she was really struggling, and then one day she completely shaved her head and has been scratching herself all over her body and I didn't really know what to do but I knew she was you know worryingly unwell so I took her to hospital this was a long time ago now and um, when I took her in to get assessed she was later admitted to an inpatient unit and it turns out she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder I'd never even heard of it at the time. I had no idea what it was. But I observed that the way that she was treated by the clinicians and the system at that time was, um, I guess I found it really awful. And I realised with horror that there was a disorder, A, that I'd never heard of, and B, that was still highly stigmatised at that time. So that motivated me to become passionate advocate for 
treating people ethically with BPD and working out what the disorder was and trying to be a force of good, I guess, in the in the field. Yeah, wow. It's amazing that that one um, experience has affected your life in so many ways and sort of defined the direction of your career. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the diagnosis criteria for borderline because it seems quite confusing at face value. You know, if you read the symptoms in the DSM, you'd probably be forgiven for thinking that, you know, everyone suffers a little bit from BPD. So how many people does it actually affect? So a lot of people get a bit confused with the diagnosis and it's a hard diagnosis to understand. And yet it affects quite a lot of people. So it's about um, around 1% of the population, uh, up to even around 3.5% of around 24 to 25 year olds. And even in hospitals, um, about 43% of inpatients can be um, meet criteria for BPD. So uh, people with BPD and the disorder is all around us. And, and yet, yeah, there's a lot of confusion about what it is. So what is it? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the disorder became a thing in 1980 when it was classed as a discrete disorder in the DSM-3. And to meet the criteria for a diagnosis, any one individual would need to meet five of nine criteria. And so any personality disorder, which, you know, the word personality disorder is a little bit um, stigmatizing in and of itself. Essentially, it's a personality or long-standing patterns of behaviour and interacting with the world and reacting to, to certain stresses and things that have become stable and habitual, I guess, over time. So traditionally, personality disorders aren't diagnosed until early adulthood, but we've seen now researchers shifting in that opinion now, and we see sometimes uh, more diagnoses or provisional diagnoses being made in early, early adolescence. But essentially, these patterns of reacting and relating to the world become stable um, when someone develops their sense of self. And uh, the reason it's called a disorder is that these patterns have become problematic, I guess, in, in the way someone functions and they lead to distress or problems with relationships, problems in functioning, so ability to work, ability to manage, ability to cope with various things. So essentially that's what a personality disorder is. Borderline in particular. So there's five of nine criteria, hard to understand because if you think about it, any two people, I guess, might only share one symptom if it's five of nine criteria. So there's a huge variety of different presentations that are possible. So what sorts of things are in these criteria? So essentially, overall, it's a pattern of instability with relationships. So relationships are often characterized by ups and downs. So maybe idealization and devaluation. One minute, they're great. The next minute, you know, there's, there's lots of arguments. 
And along with that ups, those ups and downs in relationships, another criteria is the fear of abandonment. So people with BPD really struggle with endings and often get frantic um, if they feel that a relationship might be ending or even just in separations. So that's one thing. So relationships, ups and downs. Along with that, um, there's mood reactivity and ups and downs with mood. So one minute, the person with BPD might be feeling great and the next minute really, really flat or very, very angry. So difficulties managing anger too is another criteria. So you've got dysregulated relationships, dysregulated emotion, ups and downs, and dysregulated behavior too. So impulsivity. And the DSM specifies that it needs to be in a couple of different areas. And a second criteria around impulsivity can be self-harming behaviors and suicidal behaviors too. So we might see impulsivity in things like binge eating or substance use or reckless driving or risk-taking behaviours, promiscuity, those sorts of things. So we've got uh, behavioural dysregulation and we also have dysregulation or a lack of sense of self. So we can see someone with BPD might really struggle with knowing who they are and might even become completely dissociated at times, which happens to be another criteria too. Sometimes lose their conscious awareness in any given moment. Or they can become really good at being a bit of a chameleon whilst feeling a little bit empty inside. So some people with BPD are really great at being who they think everybody else wants them to be but it means that they don't really know who they are themselves without that, without that context around them. So, yeah, so I think I covered pretty much the nine different areas of the nine different criteria, but essentially a good way to remember them is to think about dysregulation, dysregulation in emotion, dysregulation in relationships, dysregulation in behaviours with impulsivity, dysregulation in oh, cognitive dysregulation, which is thoughts. So being bombarded with thoughts or having none at all, like the dissociation or being blank, and then the lack of sense of self. So, okay. yeah, hard to understand really how, how it all fits together. So just to take one step back, you've referred to the DSM. I've actually never qualified what that is. So this is the perfect entry point. Can you just do a quick little segue? What's the DSM? The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And we're up to edition five now. And it's the American Psychiatric Society Bible, I guess, as far as how clinicians like uh, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, how they come up with the signs and symptoms of a diagnosis. So it guides clinicians in what's required to making a diagnosis. 
So it's, it's really helpful for us to understand that these DSM criteria for borderline personality disorder Mm-hmm. In 1980, when they first came about, they were deliberately chosen to be atheoretical in nature. And they were chosen um, to be behaviorally specific so that it would increase the reliability of clinicians making the diagnosis. It's easier for people and clinicians to see these, these problems. But what has happened in choosing these things that increase the reliability of making the diagnosis, it's decreased the validity in making their diagnosis. In other words, what we call BPD and the boundaries around what we label BPD, that's questionable. So it's really interesting to note that most people with BPD have at least one comorbid disorder. In other words, they have at least one other mental health condition. Okay. So it's common to have depression. It's common to have other personality disorders. Anxiety is really common. PTSD, substance abuse, eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So there are many overlapping issues. So it raises the question, is all of that BPD or is... Do we really have individuals with 10 different disorders or are they the same sort of processes going on underneath these things? So that's what I mean by it, the validity of what we kind of classify as BPD is a bit questionable, but the reliability of making a diagnosis has improved. Can you take us maybe through a story or like a case study? If you were to have like the average Um, sort of sum of someone coming in that you suspect might have borderline personality. Could you maybe use some kind of case study or similar to walk us through what we might be hearing and what sort of things they might be saying or doing that would take you on the journey of, of concluding that they may be suffering from borderline? Yeah, sure. Unfortunately, it's, it's not the best uh, story to say because things, it's really hard to get help. And so many people, I guess, a typical person who has been struggling in their lives, unfortunately, about, uh, I'd say, uh, up to 75% of individuals who end up going on to have a diagnosis of BPD have experienced a really difficult uh, upbringing and some challenging things in their upbringing, for example, Rates of trauma are really common and abuse or neglect. So you've got a history of often really challenging experiences and then you've got strong emotional reactions to those experiences. It's thought that people with BPD might be particularly sensitive in nature. So you've got these strong emotions and uh, perhaps a family background where maybe parents uh, don't know how to manage this intensity. Maybe it's not understood. Maybe the person themselves don't, doesn't know what to do with their emotions. Because this is the norm for people, 
and they've grown up with these experiences. Many people with BPD don't really even know that there's anything wrong, so to speak, but they do understand that they often feel very self-loathing, struggle with depression, maybe have urges at some point to hurt themselves or harm themselves. So in many cases, it reaches a crisis point where a person might go through a relationship breakup when they're, you know, going through high level, you know, year 11 or 12, they might really struggle with school and things then begin to unravel. Unfortunately, uh, many clinicians in Australia aren't taught about BPD. And what we know is the standard treatments don't actually work very well for individuals with BPD. In fact, treatment as usual can make individuals with BPD worse. Wow. So what happens is the whole system responds to these crises and the system gears up, but it relies on someone getting to a point of being suicidal to get help. And so someone get becomes suicidal and then they end up perhaps going into hospital and people then, then they don't stay in those hospital systems, but there's not really a place for these people to go because many of the treatments require specialist training. And mm. so... By the time someone finds me and comes to see me, often they've seen many, many, many other clinicians. They have been passed around the system. They might have gone in and out of hospital. They might have had multiple suicide attempts. Family is, is at a loss as to how to help. Partners have no idea. And everybody, the whole system is in distress. So unfortunately, that's typical of the type of um, experience someone's had before they come to see me or they come to a specialist program. So basically, by the time you see your, your clients, they're at a point of absolute crisis. Right. This is not an early intervention where they suspect perhaps they had a dream that may allude to a small amount of trauma. They're at a point of absolute crisis, sort of like the story you were telling at the beginning where you're taking a friend into hospital. It is, it is really, it's really devastating. It's sad. You know, we have even just in Victoria alone, if we think about 1% prevalence rates, there would be, this is in Australia, 60,000 people here in the state alone who would meet criteria for BPD. Now we've wow. got about 10 maybe programs, specialist programs to treat uh, someone with BPD, like a dialectical behavior therapy program. Mm -hmm. And they all exist, you know, as far as I'm aware, most of those exist in metropolitan Melbourne. So all these people in rural areas, um, they will struggle to get access to any treatment. And it's, it's, it's very, very sad. What's more, you know, as I said, the, the program's dialectical behaviour therapy, for example, it's a year-long program where two clinicians are required to treat 
about eight to 10 patients. So if you've got two wow. clinicians, specialist clinicians, eight people, then anybody else on that wait list has to wait a year. Sorry, how many patients do you see at any one given time? So I see about uh, 25 people, 25 sessions, 20 to 25 per week. Um, but the thing is, is that like, like all these other specialists, my, my books are full and right. there's wait lists. And so people with BPD are struggling to get access to real help. Yeah. It's, it's, um, so that's why I, I've actually established a whole new program just to try to try to deal with this issue. Uh, there was actually a Royal Commission in Victoria last year and there's a personality disorder service of Victoria called Spectrum. And in that, um, in their submission to the Royal Commission, they estimated that for any one person to get dialectical behaviour therapy, which is actually the treatment with the most evidence, so mm -hmm. it's shown to be effective, it would cost the state $25,000, up to $25,000 for one person alone in one year. So to treat the entire, to treat everyone, 60,000 people in Victoria, would cost the government $1.5 billion. So wow. clearly it's just, we've got a serious problem. There is a huge need and there is real risk you know, there's up to 10% end up committing suicide here. So we've got a system that reacts, that doesn't treat these people and they don't accept people in for admission. Hospital makes people worse. And yet we've got at the same time, a great need. And it sounds That's given... why so you can see it's my passion yeah. because it's just, it's really awful. And there are so many people desperately looking for help out there. And you can see the story paint itself out. And you're right. It's a very grim story where you're basically, you're poisoning the relationships that others may be relying on in their time of crisis. You don't have that when you suffer from BPD. You've, you've, it, the conditions impacted all those relationships around you and your immediate support network may not be there. Is that, is that a fair read on what you're saying? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I prefer not to use words like poisoning because it's easy for us to, to, to judge and to blame. And we do need to accept that, um, part of the symptomology of borderline personality disorder is difficulties relating, difficulties understanding how to relate in healthy ways, how to communicate needs. These people are feeling um, incredible distress mm. and they are, are ill-equipped to know what to do with these strong, powerful urges and the intensity of what they feel inside. And so it can come out in strong ways because they don't have skills to manage those urges. 
that doesn't mean that it's deliberate. And often things get misconstrued and labels get placed on people with BPD that are pejorative, like the words manipulative can be used or poisonous or harmful and destructive. And people with BPD often take it, um, often feel a huge sense of self-blame, often mm. describe hating themselves, despising themselves. And self-harm can be a form of self-punishment. So because of the intensity of the emotion and the experience inside, yes, unfortunately, it can play out in relationships. And it means that the whole system experiences the symptoms of BPD. It is not just affecting an individual. It then gets played out, not just with family members and partners, but with clinicians as well. So it does take some skill in, in managing this. So I definitely want to come back to that. I, I think I want to finish on that question on what do you personally see and what do you do? Um, so so I, I take your point on, um, on the impact it has on relationships. I think the, the place my mind went was normally in crisis, you would rely on your network, on your relationships around you. And someone suffering from BPD wouldn't even have that. So they, they would truly be isolated, which would be a horrible place to be. Ironically, absolutely. What, um, what can happen is out of desperation to get help at these times, inadvertently because of the intensity of those emotions and because of the intensity of those needs, a person with BPD can end up uh, pushing people away and, and can end up evoking strong urges in the people around them to become the aggressor, to become judgmental. And what happens is these awful patterns can repeat and repeat and repeat in a client's life mm. so that people end up being abandoned and neglected just as they were perhaps growing up being neglected and having that history of abuse. So it's desperately sad. Mm. So can you talk about that a little bit more? You've mentioned trauma. What causes someone to develop borderline personality disorder? So we know that in BPD, people with BPD are, I think, about at least 13 times more likely to experience early childhood trauma than someone in the general population, even three times more likely to experience early childhood trauma compared to someone else with a different diagnosis. So we know that early maladaptive experiences, early problematic and extreme experiences are often a, an important part of what's going on in the history of these people. That's not always the case though. So in dialectical behavior therapy, Marsha Linehan talks about an invalidating environment. And so, an invalidating environment is one that dismisses the inner experience of a person, one that inadvertently communicates that 
your emotions don't matter. You don't matter. They're not cared about. It's not important. So it sort of dismisses a person's experience. Invalidation can occur, though, with extremely well-meaning parents who might, for example, be fairly rational in the way that they manage problem solving. And they might have a kid that's really sensitive and reactive. Now, Mm -hmm. you get that kid who's having a strong reaction and parents are going to attempt to calm and settle and say it's not that bad. It's, you know, calm down, settle down. So that in itself is a form of invalidation and it's not in any way abusive. It's not in any way um, harmful or intentional. It can inadvertently if it's uh, persistent, leave this kid ill-equipped to know what to do with the intensity of their emotions. And it can signal that those experiences are somehow bad and wrong. And so that in itself, if there's a, a pattern of that, it teaches a person to dismiss their emotions, to think that they're wrong, to when they experience them, to perhaps they might spill out in relationships or impulsivity because a person's not learned how to manage all those urges and emotions. So it's thought that this pattern of invalidation of sensitive emotions can lead to then dysregulation in the individual. Now, interestingly, the more dysregulated a person is in their emotional expression, the more likely it is that they then get invalidated. Uh So any one of us, if we're expressing emotion in a strong, out-of-control way, we're going to be shut down. We're not going to be taken seriously. It's easy for us to be pushed away or, you know, People might step in and control in some way. Similarly, if we flip to the other side and fail to show or express our emotions at all, again, if no one knows what we're experiencing, then the probability of being invalidated, again, is is super high. It's impossible Mm. for someone to understand. So invalidation promotes dysregulation and dysregulation evokes more invalidation. So it's thought these two things um, systemically might lead to something that ends up with a borderline personality disorder. Sounds really complex. I hope that makes sense. It's, it's kind of complicated. Yeah. There's a lot involved. Yeah. It, it's not a straightforward cause and effect. <laughs> no, no. There's lots of different components and it's a biosocial theory, really biological predisposition with certain aspects of the environment that that leads to that so um the clinical psychologist with whom we spoke that works in tier three she she was upfront and, and so rihanna thomas mentioned that at tier three level they're basically intervening at that moment of crisis that you've you've described and their level of inputs fairly limited being a tier three responder they do the immediate work and then um, and then depending on the cases they'll make an assessment and and either continue giving care or often pass them over to a private practitioner where possible 
Rhiannon used this example, though, that was really, for me, quite tactile. She said, um, you know, a case study might be she's in therapy with a, a customer and, and the customer says, oh, don't tell my parents, but I have been stashing medicine and I, in my safe spot, have enough medicine to cause self-harm, but don't tell my parents. And she was explaining to me that in that moment, someone with with borderline personality disorder is testing your response and testing your boundaries. And that as a clinician, she's forced to divulge that information to the client's parents in the interest of the client's safety. But she's also trying to build the relationship with the client. And it was a really complex scenario. Does that sound like the sort of thing that, I guess you hear that every day, right? Like, how do you maintain the boundaries and maintain respect and not have them rush out of the room? And how do you do that? You can see that in BPD, the borderline could be considered the borderline or that boundary between self and other, couldn't it? We could consider the borderline that people walk is the boundary between life and death. People with BPD put their body on the line, don't they? In often graphic ways, they put their lives on that line. Hmm. So there's a borderline here, a fine line that these clients walk. And establishing boundaries, it's not even about recovery because often clients have never being taught what a healthy relationship is or what a boundary is. So yeah, the idea of boundaries, we will be tempted at times to transgress with a client who has these mixed expressions, their thoughts and words say one thing and their actions say something else. It's confusing to be on the receiving end of that. So DBT, we want to integrate those competing messages. The way I do that is to look for what's valid in each position because they're both saying something important at the same time. Hmm. So there's something a client is saying to me when they say how distressed they are and they tell me about their medications and their suicidal ideation. They're clearly struggling right now and wanting me to know that they're not okay. And if they're saying, please don't say this, please don't tell anyone, I can see that there must be something really valid in this client's fear of, of, of what might happen if they openly communicate just how, just how distressed they are. Mm. And maybe they're fearful that people might react or judge them or blame them or get angry with them. Mm. And so there's some reason there that they're afraid. And I need to be curious about that before I just walk in and disclose something. Now, I won't necessarily not disclose, particularly if um, I'm concerned about that person's life, 
but it might be important for me to be curious about, oh, okay, what is this fear right now? Let me understand this mm. so that I can help you wisely in this moment. Hmm. Does that make sense? Would it be fair to conclude, if I followed um, your explanation correctly, that someone with a higher amount of emotionality has a higher risk of developing borderline in the wrong context when growing up. Is that a fair conclusion? I think that's a fair conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. So a biological predisposition to being strong reactivity, to yeah. reacting quickly and having strong emotions, being hard to settle, slower to return to baseline, um, being more impulsive biologically. And yeah. you put that kid in a in a, an invalidating or a, an environment that's uh, perhaps had negative experiences, abuse, mm -hmm. neglect, yeah, then you're more likely to experience or develop a BPD. Yeah. Okay. So you're using that threat of self harm as a powerful communication signal of distress. Yeah. And look, I don't want to misrepresent what this particular clinician was doing. Um, you know, you can listen to the whole conversation. It was episode three of the podcast because she really was incredibly empathetic and extremely aware of the distress that her client was in and working off that. Right. I think the direction that my mind went in was that her client was expressing, you know, this lack of personal boundaries. And I think your reflection on how borderline is basically typified by a lack of boundaries on all fronts echoes this particular clinical example really closely. But, you know, in the original chat, we also spoke about bipolar and borderline, and we were reflecting on how powerfully creative people who suffer from bipolar can become, you know, in their, like, manic swings. I mean, in fact, even, I mean, even the deep depressive phases can give them amazing perspective of life and can really, like, literally color their art, right? Like we saw this with Vincent van Gogh. So I was wondering whether borderline has any like secondary positive elements or, or aspects to it like bipolar does. Well, interestingly, uh, many people with BPD are misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that's oh. one of the that's one of the confusions because emotional swings and mood swings are in both of these diagnoses. The clients that I work with with BPD, I, I love my work. So the clients I see, I really enjoy working with. Yeah. Um, they're great people. They're from a variety of backgrounds. Some of them are highly intelligent, highly successful. BPD doesn't discriminate. You've definitely got some strengths here. So... People with BPD are sensitive and that means they're extremely uh, sensitive and empathic sometimes. Of course, there's individual variation here on what people's strengths are, but certainly a person who's grown up in a volatile environment may well be trained almost to read the signs of danger in that environment. So people with BPD can be very quick to read interpersonal cues and, and, and to consider the needs of others at times. 
that can go into uh, considering the needs of others and self-sacrificing too much at times too. But it's certainly a beautiful characteristic as is, you know, there's a lot of creativity and, mm. and a lot, often, you know, some perfectionism and a lot of high achieving. Now, the downside of that is being very self-critical. Mm-hmm. And, but the upside can be that people have a lot of talent at times. So there's also a lot of passion in BPD and uh, perhaps that's one of the things I relate to. I'm really passionate about uh, the whole thing. And I think uh, I see a lot of passion in my clients too, so. I think it's important to reflect on that because it is a complex condition and it has different components and and elements to it. it. It always surprises me to learn how many people who are incredibly creative have mental health issues and the philosophical question I always wonder about is would they still have been as successful and creative had they not had those extremes of emotional emotional swings you know my personal my I have a personal view on this and for me I really feel that the depth of pain that a person has experienced can lead to the depth of potential of which that person can therefore experience love, the capacity to experience positive emotions depends on the depth of the negative experience they've experienced. So if someone is fairly mild in their emotional expression, then I think it goes both ways. So whilst Mm. the depths of despair can be really hard to survive, it opens up the possibility of the highest states of joy, love, euphoria. With bipolar, that, you know, that can be dangerous and, and care needs to be taken to know how to manage those intense experiences. But yeah, that's my view. Okay. We're going to pause it here as the end of part one. Join us next week as we continue our deep dive into borderline personality disorders. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single one and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. Your reviews and comments make these conversations more discoverable. So thank you so much.